everyone. Welcome to Movie Culture. We're back, baby. Today we are talking about Soul. Soul was released in 2020 and is Pixar's 23rd feature film. The movie was written and directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers. If you haven't seen this movie, here is a quick synopsis. And if you have seen it, we will put timestamps in the show notes so you can skip to the discussion. Joe Gardner is a middle-aged middle school teacher in New York City, dreaming of playing jazz professionally, but tempted by the stability of a full-time teaching position. Chasing his dreams, Joe auditions for the legendary Dorothea Williams Quartet. He nails the audition, and he's hired on the spot. And on the way home, well, Joe dies. Joe's soul floats out of his body towards the great beyond, but Joe, not ready, makes a break for it before, where souls begin before birth. Through a mix-up, Joe is assigned a soul to mentor, to ensure that this soul is ready for life. The problem is that this soul, Soul 22, does not want to go to Earth, and Joe wants to return back to his body. They connect with a mystic who traverses the spirit and earthly planes by being in the zone, and he shows Joe a way to return to his body, with 22 hitching a ride. Upon waking, Joe realizes that he's not in his own body, but in the body of a cat, while 22 is in his body. As Joe tries to figure out how to switch back, 22 takes advantage of her trial run as a human to learn about passion and purpose. At the end of the day, they're sent back to the great before, where 22 realizes that she's ready to begin her life. But Joe argues that since she had those experiences in his body, he deserves the second chance on Earth. Angry, 22 storms off as Joe goes back to Earth. Joe gets his night with the Dorothea Williams Quartet, but realizes after that his life hasn't changed just because he achieved his dream. He plays piano to go back into the zone, moving to the spirit plane and connects again with 22. He understands that 22 was ready for life, and he escorts her to Earth so that she can begin. For his actions, Joe is offered a second chance at life, which he takes and vows to enjoy every moment of the rest of his life. So, Tay, what did you think? Uh, I have so many thoughts. Nice. (laughs) But they're all kind of jumbled, so I hope that this can help me figure it out. Great. I'm excited to help unspool them. But generally... Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up, I think. Yeah, thumbs up. It is a really interesting and complex and thorny movie, and I'm really excited that we get this opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Okay, so what did you like? There's a bunch of stuff I liked and a bunch of stuff I didn't like. Okay, I guess we just have to dive in somewhere. I want to start with... I guess the beginning, which is the first third of the movie, specifically the first like 10 minutes before the title sequence, which is incredible. The first 10 minutes are basically Joe living his life. He's teaching a class. He's telling people about the zone and purpose and meaning. He gets his big break. We see him with his family and then he dies. And then the title sequence rolls. And I was shocked that we weren't like a half hour into the movie already. Like the first bit of this movie just flows so quickly. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me how that's only 10 minutes. No, it's wild. They fit in so much. 
Yeah. So much information, so much characterization, so many visual gags. It doesn't feel like exposition for a second. There is a little bit of exposition that comes later, but that early stuff, not at all. It reminds me a little bit of Up in that there is this short in the beginning Mm -hmm. of the movie that is sort of distinct from the rest of the movie, and it's absolutely beautiful. It also reminds me of Toy Story, where the beginning of the movie is so action-packed, and it just runs from scene to scene, an exciting character to exciting character. I thought that was a really awesome way to start the movie. And then, even after the first 10 minutes, the first 36 minutes, I think, is where we sort of saw the, the change, that is all in the great before. And I think that that is a super cute, funny, great animation. I really enjoyed that first third of the movie. And it promises a lot about what this movie is going to be about. It's going to be about life. It's going to be about this character, about meaning. I was just really excited by this first third. It was such a great way to enter the movie. Yeah, I agree. And we've talked about before how well Pixar starts their movies. I think that when we watched Finding Nemo, we had the same feeling of like, wait, that all happened in the first 15 minutes. We're already here. Oh, yeah. They don't start slow. But I agree about the first act of this movie, the first 30 minutes or so. It's really fun and it sets up a lot of promises for the viewer and a lot of ideas about what this movie is going to be about. And I remember the first time that we watched it, I just had this feeling of awe, like, oh my God, they're going to do it. They're really going to make a movie about the meaning of life, yeah. like a so-called kids movie just about death and and the afterlife and what this is all about. The movie is called Soul. It's called Soul. And they don't for a second opt out and be like, just kidding, we mean like, music right we mean a a genre they're like no the main characters are not humans they're going to be literal souls it's a huge swing oh my god we will talk at length about whether they pulled it off whether they they hit the i don't know how to pull off this baseball metaphor yikes it's a really simple (laughs) metaphor too they hit the ball we'll talk about if they connected (laughs) right but the it's a fact, big swing. The it's a home run swing. The fact that they tried is really exciting to me, and I really appreciate the ambition. For sure. What else did you like? You know, the movie takes such a big swing, and I think that's so impressive and exciting. And the movie is really trying to engage with the big things. But the thing I think it does best, seriously, as well as basically anything I've ever seen, is one of the small things. And that is the way this movie addresses jazz Mm -hmm. and the music of this movie. Now, this movie won Best Score. The score was written by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, as well as primarily John Batiste. John Batiste, who is mostly known for being the band leader of Stay Human, which is the house band for the Stephen Colbert Late Show. But he's a fantastic jazz musician. Trent Reznor was originally the musician of Nine Inch Nails and has since become a celebrated score writer. But the music in this movie is incredible, and the way that they appreciate jazz, both as an art form, the way that jazz is portrayed on screen through Joe playing a lot. There's a lot of jazz in this movie. There's Joe at the piano. There's the Dorothea Williams Quartet. It's also a lifestyle, both the lifestyle of a musician 
and a lifestyle of improvisation. Throughout the movie, Joe and 22, whenever they're doing something well, whenever they're connecting, whenever they're improvising well, they call it jazzing, which is sort of a silly thing, but I love the way that the movie understands this conceptually. It brings jazz conceptually into the movie and also musically. Jazz is said to be the greatest American invention and, of course, is a really important African-American artistic form. The way that the movie, through John Batiste and Kemp Powers, really appreciates jazz's role and honors that, I think is truly, truly fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It was great. I know very little about jazz, but I appreciated it. What's another thing that you liked? The animation is beautiful. Oh, it's great. Especially that scene right after that opening sequence that we're talking about. The Joe falling scene? Yeah. They're they're doing a lot of different styles with animation. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to move us from the real world of New York into this soul world and the way that they contrast the animation style between those two worlds is really cool. There's this kind of funky linear geometric style that is very distinct from the typical Pixar style that you know from Toy Story and really everything else. It's a wholly different wholly different thing. And you would think that that the most beautiful animation would come from this soul world. Mm-hmm. But actually, the best animation we get in New York City, when they're animating it, both in the beginning and at the end. The I way, love the way that they... Oh, The city feels so alive. Mm-hmm. And the way that they convey that feeling through the visuals is really masterful. I love the way that they portray New York in this movie, both the chaos and the clutter of Joe bursting out of the hospital in his hospital gown into the sea of people. At some point, Joe as a cat yells to a 22 as Joe, you can't stop moving in the middle of the street. Classic New York advice. Oh, obviously. You in that scene when 22 is in the world for the first time and Mm -hmm. is panicking because of it, you were just like, yes, this is how New York feels. Yeah. Completely overwhelming. But also New York feels like the village where the jazz club is. And it feels like the subway, which is both dirty and grimy and crowded, but also full of magic and music. And I think that's what I really liked about the way that they portray New York It is crowded and scary and chaotic, but also magical. This is something that In the Heights also portrayed, in a way, the real music of the city. It also has a cameo from Pizza Rat, which is always fun. Anything featuring New York has to feature Pizza Rat. It's a rule. Okay, what else did you like? Well, I want to take a step into the more philosophical, because... I think the movie does that. It takes these steps through where there are the obvious levels about the music and the animation, and then it gets deeper. So I really liked The Great Before. That's the areas, I think they call it you the you seminar. That's where souls live before they're born, and that's where they are endowed with personality. And they go to these symposiums where they are made to be anxious or aloof or energetic, whatever it is. We just see in a very funny way, the basis of what makes a person a person. And I just 
liked the I liked it conceptually. I thought it was a fun idea about who are we, nature versus nurture, what is the basis of personality. That is a really interesting psychological idea. I don't know that the movie does it very thoughtfully, but they do it with great humor, and I really appreciated that. All right, what else you got? Well, I want to engage in the philosophy of this movie. But before we get to that, I want to talk about a few things that sort of stuck in my craw a little bit. Is that an expression? Stuck in your craw? <laughs> it felt right. I don't Who know. Are you? What does that even mean? Okay, I just looked it up. The craw is a stomach of a bird. It's from the hunter days when birds would swallow stones and that would get stuck in their stomach so they couldn't properly digest it. Okay, that's exactly what I meant. That's a perfect <laughs> metaphor. Moving on. I want to preface this by saying, Pete Docter, you the god. Pete Docter has been nominated for the Oscar for Best Animated Film for every movie he's made, all four. He's won three of those times. The only time he lost was the first year the award was given out when he lost uh, to Shrek after producing Monsters, Inc. Wow. He's been nominated the most times in the 20 years that this award has been given. He's also won the most times. Part of that, you could say, is because Hayao Miyazaki produced a bunch of his movies before the award was created. But Pete Docter is the king. That said, stop putting talking animals in your movies. I don't, I don't, come on. This is a talking cat movie. That's what this, we have this whole movie about what is the meaning of life and what is a soul. But the middle half of this movie is just that there's a talking cat in New York. Is that what we're doing here? It's such a bait and switch. I The first time we watched this, I paused it and looked at you and was like, no, no, they're not going back to Earth right now. Stay in the soul world. I know. So we've talked about how Pixar is really, really good at making these multi-layered, multi-appealing movies where their storylines and their characters and the themes are appealing on multiple levels to different age groups. Yeah. I don't think that Soul does that well. And I think it's very clear in this talking animal segment of the movie. You have Joe in the beginning who's dealing with very middle-aged adult man problems mm -hmm. with unsatisfied in his career, feeling like he's been wasting his life. Is he really fulfilling his purpose? Mm -hmm. These aren't really themes and ideas that are relatable for kids. And so you have a premise of this movie that is not relating to what is supposed to be its core audience. And it feels like having the cat, the talking cat and body swap part of the movie is kind of a last ditch attempt to make this movie also appeal to kids. But it feels like a totally different movie. Like they literally switch settings and all of a sudden the tone is completely different. Mm -hmm. And the ideas are different, and it's it just feels jarring. I absolutely agree. It feels like two totally separate movies for two totally separate audiences. And it's too bad because Pixar is masterful at making one movie for many audiences. And usually this is shorthanded as 
what's for adults and what's for kids, right? The thematic is for adults. The adventure is for kids. The animation is for kids. The humor is for adults, stuff like that. I think that that's probably an oversimplification, but it does feel like in this movie, they decided to have a very serious philosophical movie for people who wanted to think deeply and think about the meaning of life in a way that you can only do in an animated story and it pulls it off and then it yanks out and there's a cat eating pizza. It's just a totally different thing. It it never, I think, appeals to both audiences at once. And I am very frustrated with it, especially because I think that in the first bit of the movie, I do think that can appeal to both audiences. Joe has a relationship with his mother where she thinks she knows best. He wants his own agency. There's some tension there that I think is very relatable. Joe is in school, right? He's a teacher. He's not a student. But this is still in a school setting. I think that there are lots of things about Joe's middle-aged life that are relatable to kids trying to figure out who they are in the world. And it's just such an odd, strange twist that it's about a talking cat. I don't actually know that I think that Joe can be relatable to kids. I mean... It'd be a slightly different movie. It'd be a really different movie. It's not that the ideas about what is the meaning of life and, and death and, and those big questions can't be accessible to kids. I think that kids do think about these things and a lot of kids have this fascination with death and it's certainly in a more abstract way than adults mm -hmm. but i think specifically joe's main concern is am i wasting my life and mm, yeah kids are just not at the point of their life where that's a concern yet for sure but i don't think kids need to engage with that side because there's also this like mom, don't tell me what to do, which kids can definitely vibe with. I think that in all Pixar movies, kids pick up on some of it, but not all of it. I think that this can be the same case. It'd be slightly different. I also don't know that it should be that way. I don't know that that is what you want kids to be picking up on, but I think I would have appreciated it more had they stuck on one side. Instead, the movie's like, you know, the movie turns from soul to secret life of pets. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I, I think that the thing that is inaccessible to kids is not the ideas or the relationships in the movie, but the reference points, which mm -hmm. we see both in the real world when Joe is thinking about pensions at yeah. the school, um, but really in The Great Before, which is so much based around corporate culture and I have so many thoughts and feelings about but I want to stay on the talking cat for a minute okay. because I think it was a major issue with this movie not just in that we personally didn't want to watch a talking cat movie mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also in the implications about race which for sure we need to discuss yeah Something that we've not explicitly said, but is core to this movie, is that Joe Gardner is black. He's voiced by Jamie Foxx, and Kemp Powers, a African-American screenwriter, was brought on to write and co-direct this movie in the same year that he 
wrote One Night in Miami, which is a really terrific movie about civil rights icons like Malcolm X and Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke talking about the ideas of race and having a dialogue between each other and offering different perspectives. This is a movie that was very careful in some ways about the ideas of race and certainly made a good faith effort to do that. But in Soul, when Joe and 22 re-enter the world and swap bodies, it's worth understanding that this means that Jamie Foxx is no longer voicing a black man. He's voicing a cat. And Tina Fey is no longer voicing a cute, ethereal blob. She's voicing a middle-aged black man. Uh, there's a lot going on here. So when the trailer dropped, I think... Mm-hmm. We didn't know yet that this was going to be a talking cat movie. It was no. really just the that he dies and then becomes a blob. And so this started a lot of conversation about this trope in cartoons where mm-hmm. black characters are taken out of their bodies and for the majority of the movie, they are often an animal. I mean... Princess and the Frog is an example. Disney did their first black princess and then Mm -hmm. made her a frog the whole time. But it happens a lot in other animation, too. So there was a lot of backlash already when people saw that this black character was going to be a blob for the majority of the movie. Literally dehumanized. Right. Pixar responded by saying something like, don't worry, we didn't realize this was a trope, but... He's not going to be a blob for most of the movie. What they didn't say is that he's actually going to be a cat, which is worse. Is is like oh oh my god. They were like don't worry. You're 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 afraid that we're doing the trope, but we're actually doing the trope way more than you think. Yeah. You thought we were doing a variation on the trope, but it turns out we're doing the very specific thing you don't want us to do. And what's worse, mm. We are going to have his body on screen, but it's going to be voiced by Tina Fey. Tina Fey, who has a history of doing blackface. There were four episodes in 30 Rock that included blackface. In Kimmy Schmidt, she has a white character who is playing an indigenous character for some reason. So you don't want any white actress in this black character's body, but specifically, you do not want Tina Fey. Especially Tina Fey, who has already had issues in this area. I think the thing that I don't understand in this movie is why it has to be Tina Fey, why they chose Tina Fey in the first place. She specifically says, as the character of 22, that she could sound like anyone. She just sounds that way because it annoys people. Yes. (laughs) And it did. It did. There is a lot of issues about race in this movie that wouldn't be fixed by changing Tina Fey. But I think it would help a lot. And I just wish that we could have seen the version of this movie with a black actress playing 22. I think that there is a whole other layer to this movie that we Mm -hmm. could have gotten if it had been a black actress, because the whole relationship between 22 and Joe is a mentee-mentor relationship. Yeah. Joe is paired with 22 because she has had so many mentors and 
you know, these famous, incredible historical figures, and none of them have been able to get through to her. It could have been really interesting if we had seen that all of these mentors that she has throughout all of history are all white historical figures. And for the most part, the ones that they reference are. I think there's only a a couple exceptions like Gandhi. Yeah. But really, it could have been an interesting commentary to say, here's this black actress, this, this black character who has only had these white figures trying to teach her what it means to live and, and how to go be a person. And they have deemed her incapable because they're not able to understand her or connect because they have a very narrow idea of what it means to be a person and what it means to exist in the world. And the movie isn't shy about critiquing the white education system. It already has this kind of throwaway joke line referencing Orwell about how the education system is just a way for the wealthy ruling class to oppress the people. So so there's already a reference they could build upon that. And it just felt like there was this potential for more depth that really was squandered by casting Tina Fey. Absolutely. It would have been such an interesting layer of depth to really explore the idea of what we consider to be a great life and a worthy life, and that usually that is of people who are white and European and fulfill a specific perspective about what we think greatness is, especially being about, you know, military leaders or scientists or philosophers and not thinking about other people who can have great lives, especially because I actually think that would have been in line with the themes of this movie. Not just other people who can have great lives, but other people who do have Exactly, great lives. yes. Yeah. So that's kind of the the bullet points about race. There's a lot of really good conversation about it online. I'll link one article in particular that I really like in the show notes that kind of breaks this down in more detail. Um, I think it's worth reading. Great. It's certainly worth exploring. So we've talked about how this movie feels like it's split into two, that there are parts of it that are for kids and parts of it that are for adults. And we can reject that children versus adult framing, but there are parts that are heady and parts that are not. And I want to dive into those parts, the ones that are more philosophical, and try and pick out what this movie's really saying. And I think the place to start here is to talk about the astral plane where people go when they are in the zone. Yeah, I love that. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. It's so great. I think it's a really beautiful visual depiction of what people talk about when they talk about this concept of flow and the state of creating or being so absorbed or involved with something that you kind of leave the physical realm and you're completely focused on this one thing. The best pieces of art have this ability to give context and understanding to something that we inherently understand and understand emotionally, but don't have a word for or a specific understanding of. The zone 
is one of these things, right? We all know what it feels like to be in the zone, to be in a flow state, whatever that is. But I at least have never had the image in my mind's eye of what does that really mean? What does it feel like? What does it look like until seeing this movie? And this really has changed how I view the flow state. Yeah, and I I think the most interesting and exciting part of this whole visualization of the zone and flow is how the movie pairs that concept with the concept of lost souls. It's so cool. So in this astral plane, we see people kind of floating above in this ethereal space where they're creating and they're participating in their art. And below them are these monstrous creatures, these souls that have become totally consumed with these ideas so much that they have become monsters. And the movie explains the link between that. And I want to find it and just play the explanation here. So many of them. Sad. You know, lost souls are not that different from those in the zone. What? The zone is enjoyable, but when that joy becomes an obsession, one becomes disconnected from life. For a time, I was a lost soul myself. Really? Tetris. And we see at some points a soul drop from the zone, from the flow state, from the passion and the joy into the obsession and turn into these monstrous creatures. I love the idea that this flow state and being a lost soul are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. I think that as much as I love it, I, there's part of me that is resistant to this idea. I think it's so pervasive in our culture that there's always this element of danger linked to creation, to artistic creation, that if you love something so much and if you're so involved in a passion, that that is something that is dangerous. And and certainly there's a truth to it that it can lead to obsession. But I... I think it's interesting because in the movie, we see one clear example of a lost soul. The movie shows us this man who is a day trader who's so obsessed with making his trades on Wall Street, presumably, that he has become totally disconnected from his actual life. And he can only see his computer screen and he's hunched over his desk at his job, and that's how he's become a lost soul. Mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting because it's it's so different than what the movie presents as the joyous, creative space. We, we, when we see people in that space, they're creating art, they're playing sports, they're they're doing these things that love that they love that brings them joy. It's harder to conceptualize an example of someone playing piano with so much joy and so much passion that it turns into an obsession that consumes their life. That's hard for us to imagine, given what we see in the movie and also what we know about the world, whereas that's much easier to imagine as a day trader. I'm trying to think about how to articulate this contradiction because I don't know that I'm doing a good job of it. Surely, yes, maybe someone's passion really is day trading and they get so much joy and it's their craft. But it feels like 
when we see this example of a lost soul, it is very much in this corporate money-driven frame. Yeah. It seems like he's become a lost soul because he is so wrapped up in this money-making mentality. That's certainly how it's presented. Right. And although Joe is not a lost soul in the movie, we do see the it the the story does make it clear that he's too focused on jazz to the detriment of experiencing the rest of his life. We in common parlance would kind of call Joe a lost soul, not in the monstrous way that the movie means it, but in someone who doesn't know what he's trying to do with his life, who feels like his life has passed him by, who feels like unattached from the things that give him meaning. Right, right. But that's the thing is that it's not really that he's so obsessed with jazz and his Mm -hmm. passion and piano playing, which he loves and brings him so much joy. And he only ever wants to play the piano, so he never wants to do anything else. Yeah, yeah is that he's so fixated on this idea of success and what success would look like in his field and kind of the the fame attached to being a famous jazz musician and playing with the big names, you know, making it. What turns Joe into a lost soul, again, not in the way that the movie says it, but the way we understand it, is not the jazz. It's jazz turning into an obsession with success. Right. Yes, exactly. And and I think as much as I love this visual metaphor of, you know, the the comparing lost souls and being in the zone, I don't I don't feel like it rings true because I don't think it's coming from the same place. I don't think it's that you can love something so much that it ruins your life. I see what you're saying. I also think that maybe maybe it's halfway that it isn't coming exactly from the same place, right? What makes you a lost soul isn't what is, gets you into the zone. But maybe it's when what gets you into the zone is distorted into something else, away from joy. Yes. That, you know, we see someone, for example, uh, descend from the zone into being a lost soul, and they are uh, using a metal detector. That's what we see them doing. And presumably they're on the beach, and we know that there are people who find that to be a relaxing hobby a way to pass time, classic things we think of as flow state activities, which, again, can be or cannot be related to joy. Mm -hmm. And as he descends, you can say, well, maybe that's no longer a relaxing activity. It's actually quite stressful because he's searching for treasure, he's searching for wealth, and his pursuit of wealth is what makes him a lost soul as opposed to this hobby of his. Right. And, and I, I think I think that's exactly it. And and I don't think it's not that the movie is saying something different than this. It's just mm-hmm. that it's not saying this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's not making this connection of of how this flow state can turn into being a lost soul. And I think that the straightforward implication is playing into this myth of, you know, great art takes something from you mm-hmm. that that if someone is really focused on their passions and creations and and is excited about something, then, then you know, there's a debt that must be paid and that mm-hmm, debt is mm-hmm. their soul or, or something, like, whatever. But it's not the joy and the creation and the art that is dangerous. It is the society that pushes our focus towards 
success and that distorts our focus. Yeah. And and money making and the need to survive in this mm-hmm. society. And I think that because we live in this society, mm-hmm. this does happen. I want to go over the exact structure here, though, because I think this is a little confusing. So I want to make sure I'm getting this straight. I think what you're saying is that the straightforward implication is that too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And you're saying that that shouldn't be the case when the good thing is the pursuit of joy or art or passion, which I agree with. And I don't know that the movie is saying that too much passion is a bad thing. But the movie doesn't include the middle step that it needs to make sure that it's not saying that. Yeah, exactly. We see Joe, among other people, reach the flow state by doing things they love, like playing music, playing sports, etc. We also then see people go from the flow state, from the zone, into being a lost soul. We don't see the mechanism that brings them from the flow state to being a lost soul, which means that we can only assume that the same thing that brought them into the flow state is what transitions them out of it. Yes, that they just stayed in the flow state for too long. Exactly. And what you're saying is there is a different mechanism. And Mm -hmm. maybe that mechanism is society. And maybe that mechanism is the pursuit of something unhealthy. And maybe that mechanism is capitalism itself. But there is a mechanism that isn't just the pursuit of joy leads to danger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you for helping me articulate that. That's what we're doing here. (laughs) I think that's really interesting. And I think that kind of leads into the other piece of the movie that I find fascinating, which is The Great Before. I know. As much as I love The Great Before, I know you have takes on it. (laughs) I also love The Great Before. I think it's really fun. I think it's a very fun conceptualization of how souls are created, I guess. I mean, that's what this this is. and The biological basis of personality. (laughs) I think it's kind of a funny parody of work conferences. Although, to be honest, when I watched this, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's like Epcot at Disney World because that is my reference point instead of being like, it's like a work seminar because I'm not an adult. I would say that they are equally like the pavilions at Epcot's and conference rooms at, you know, conferences. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think it's really fun. And I and I want to acknowledge that because it's a movie and there's also an element of like things are allowed to just be fun. <laughs> also like great jokes in it. Yeah. Uh, but I also find it very interesting when thinking about using a corporate framework to discuss souls and what makes a soul. Say more about that. I don't know how to say this without saying an incredibly cheesy pun, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of the great before that feels soulless. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just so accurate. I can't believe you went there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... We see these brand new souls, you know, they they kind of come up and they're all in this orientation meeting. They're matched up with our mentors. 
they're, they go through this process designed for efficiency to help them find their spark. Mm-hmm. They're sent through in an assembly line fashion through personality traits so that they each get different kinds of personality traits. And they are created in an assembly line fashion. Yeah, literally. Yeah. They all look the same. They're all these colorless blobs. And I just think that it's it's an interesting contradiction in a movie, which we'll get to this later, but in a movie that is so much about resisting the idea of a specific purpose and living your life for efficiency and purpose. Mm-hmm. The whole great before is designed for efficiency and the purpose of moving new souls to Earth as fast as possible. I actually think it's worse than that. The creation of a soul is something that we think of as being sacred. There is something immensely special and important about souls. You know, that's the whole question of religion, right? What is a soul? It's not just that the great before is efficient. It's that it's also clinically random and uncaring. And souls are not created with any thought, right? There's an idea that, you know, that God creates people with immense amounts of care and thought. And what we see is the Jerry's who, you know, basically play God in this movie. I think there's actually a joke about that. But the Jerry's are not creating souls with thought. They're creating souls based on absolute randomness and total carefree. And I think that that coolness about a soul is so strange, both in the context of a movie and also just the way we would like to think about, you know, what is the basis of your personality? What makes you the way that you are? Is it because you were just kind of cast off and ran through like a pavilion that said aloof and now you're aloof? Like that, that doesn't feel like how souls should be created. Is it wrong that that doesn't bother me? I mean, I... I think I I didn't think it was random. I wish it was mm-hmm. more random. I wish it was more chaotic. I, I think the part that bothered me is that it felt so like they're walking around with clipboards and they're like, all right, move through this now. And mm. and they're kind of like pushing these souls along the assembly line. And and I don't know. I I think I'm I'm not religious. So I and I don't <laughs> I don't think that Pete Doctor is like I, this is my theory on how, how souls are made. Like he's, he's just kind of like creating a thought experiment. Yeah. But. Although I believe that he is religious for whatever it's worth. Yeah. That should be noted to say that his religious background certainly informs the way that he considers the creation of a soul and in some way influences his art. And Pete Doctor has acknowledged that his Christianity influences him. And while he doesn't try actively to create Christian movies, because of the influences that he has, he is still putting out things that make sense to him in the context that he grew up in and lives in. The Christian idea of a soul is not the universal Mm -hmm. idea of a soul. Right. And I want to say one more thing about The Grey Before, and and I think it's the same idea— a different reading. So mm-hmm. I'll say it two ways. The first way is the less generous way, which is, you know, this idea of the souls being colorless blobs. The movie inherently asks a question about what is a soul and what 
makes a soul and what gives us soul. And here, all of them are created the same. They all look the same. They're all on this same assembly line created like widgets. For as much talk about the whole mentorship program, which is like the premise of how Joe and 22 know each other, the soul doesn't really rely on interaction with its community. It's really just which pavilions they were pushed through and what spark they got in the, you know, the earth simulation room. It doesn't really even matter what spark they got, just that they got a spark. Right. I think that the colorless blob thing is interesting in the conversation about race. Yeah. Because there's maybe this, I don't know how to put it, like almost a fantasy that you hear a lot from white people specifically about, I wish that skin color wasn't a thing. Like we're all the same. Yeah. Colorblindness. Exactly. And this idea that underneath it all, our souls all look exactly the same, yeah. regardless of race or background or anything. And on the one hand, I get where that idea is coming from. And it, it's not skin color, certainly, that makes a soul. But at the same time, I think there is an irony with the double meaning of soul in this movie, which is, you know, this Christian and philosophical idea of soul, and then also the music genre. Mm -hmm. And you can't have the music genre of soul without talking about the black experience in America. Yeah. You take that out of it and you no longer have soul. Black culture and history and community are all inherent in the genre and it is worth saying that there is actually no soul music in this movie. There is jazz music exclusively, which is another music genre that is fully influenced mm -hmm. by black culture. And while there are musical connections between jazz music and soul music, as there are connections between basically all kinds of music, it does feel a little strange to call a movie about a jazz musician soul. Yep, that's a good point. I don't think that's exactly what you were saying, but I, I thought it was <laughs> worth, worth adding in. I think that thinking about soul as something that is divorced from culture and heritage and community is a flattening mm -hmm. of the idea of a soul. But also, I guess it said the generous way, like the, the more generous reading of this idea is that you kind of have these little blobs that all look the same, but they're unfinished. And then they go to Earth. And the experience of living in the world and living on Earth is what ultimately gives their soul shape. Because we see these little circles, these balls <laughs> of mm -hmm. soul that yeah, drop yeah. down to Earth. And then later, after people die when they're on the treadmill to the afterlife, which we never see, which I, th I think is a very smart decision. When they're on the treadmill to the afterlife, their souls have a shape. It kind of looks like the person that they were on Earth. That's why Joe kind of looks like his human form, but 22 is just a little ball. Yeah. I like that idea. I, I like that idea of... You are changed by your experiences on Earth? Yeah, and the soul being like a malleable substance. 
it also works nicely with this idea of there before the grace of God go I. I don't know why I'm getting so religious in this episode. This is like very strange. (laughs) Also with like religious ideas that are not my own religion. Uh, Anyway, uh, the idea that, you know, your soul was randomly put into your experience and your body and your culture. And it is only through that randomness that you have the life that you have as opposed to a totally, totally different life and totally different cultural understandings and experiences. I do appreciate in the generous reading that souls are all equal and there's nothing about your soul that makes it any more deserving than Mm -hmm. any other soul. It's just that it was placed into your circumstances, assuming your circumstances have been productive and lucky and privileged, and that it could have been any of the souls bouncing around the gate to earth could have landed in your situation and it happens that it's yours that did but it could have been anyone and to recognize that your soul is fundamentally no different from the soul of someone else at least initially and to look at someone who grew up in different circumstances and with different experiences and privileges and to think that there is nothing that was fundamentally different about you from them i think that's true So I don't really know, ultimately, how I feel about the great before. I don't know. I I think there's just something exciting about seeing a movie that is is working so hard to push back against the society that we live in, while also being so much within the society that the conception of the afterlife or the before life or whatever this is, like a totally different realm for Earth is still stuck within this capitalist framework. I think it's a fun insight into the two of us, what we are individually concerned about in this instinct or what we are made uncomfortable by, I suppose, that you really bristle against the idea of this efficient system, which I am quite comfortable with. And I am very uncomfortable with this idea of a randomness that you are totally (laughs) fine with. I think that's a fun, uh, anyway. I think what you're getting at also leads me to one of the things that I had some trouble with about this movie, which is that there's such a great premise and such great philosophical effort, right? As you were saying earlier, they take such a big swing and that's so fun. But the philosophical answers that they reach are not as tight or as well thought out as I would hope for a movie like this. And of course, there are no answers to any of these questions. You know, the great Mm -hmm. philosophers throughout history think about, you know, what is a soul? That is the preeminent question. But I wish that the movie had, I suppose, made more of an effort. And there's one area that this I found uh, the most notable. And that is the discussion about the last stage of the assembly line, the spark that the Mm -hmm. souls get, which is their ticket to Earth. A lot of the plot of the movie revolves around 22 trying to receive their spark. That's been the thing that has kept them in the grave before for a timeless amount of time. Mm -hmm. They never found their spark, and it seems like they can't find it in the grave before, that it's only through going to Earth, which is only possible through this like very strange circumstance of the movie. And our protagonist, Joe, for the entire movie, interprets Spark as purpose, as Mm -hmm. passion, as 
meaning for life mm-hmm. and decides that his passion is jazz. It's jazz piano. That's what he does. That's his purpose. That's his mission. That's his meaning. That's what he was put on this earth to do. That's like the first thing he says in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's in the opening scene that he says that. Yeah. Because Joe is our protagonist, we believe him. We accept that spark equals passion. And Joe is pursuing his passion the entire movie. I'm going to fast forward to the end, though, because near the end of the movie, when Joe returns to the great before with 22, he speaks to, you know, God Jerry and says that playing piano, playing jazz piano is his spark, right? That's his passion. That's his that's his meaning. And Jerry replies, what are you talking about? A spark is just something. It's just what you find joy with. It has nothing to do with passion or meaning for living or anything like that. Now, I think that's a good message. Yeah, he specifically says something like, you mentors with your meanings of life and purposes, you're so basic. That's a good joke. And it's delivered by Richard Iowate, who's a British comedian who is fantastic and has a great voice. I love him as a voice actor (laughs) in this, especially as the voice of God. Big fan. But that's where we're leaving this? A movie that is about Joe pursuing his goal, the meaning of his life, and the philosophical answer about what a spark is, is that it's actually not that, it's not your passion, that your passion doesn't matter to what your soul is, your passion is not related to your soul, like that's where we're ending. I I appreciate why that works about explaining what the spark is. The alternative is also very strange. It would be very strange to have ingrained and embedded in a soul a specific passion or purpose. It would be very strange for a soul to be sent to earth to play jazz piano. Because what if that soul never like starts playing piano and never finds out that that's what they were supposed to do? Especially because we also see way more obscure sparks. Like, (laughs) oh, your spark is being an astronaut. Well, there have been like 14 astronauts in history. (laughs) Like, that's not that many. Okay, there have been a little more than that. But like, who's an astronaut? That's not a thing you can make someone's like embedded purpose of life as. So I appreciate that you can have a spark that is not tied to any specific thing. But... We've spent the whole movie talking about purpose and passion and the meaning of your life being this specific thing. I guess to be honest, to me it feels like the rug is pulled out from under you at the end of the movie. That what you thought this movie was trying to address is actually cast aside in a throwaway line and it's not about that. And I don't know. I don't really know what to make of that. Oh my god, I loved it. You didn't like it? I I like the joke. I thought... Oh my goodness. <laughs> like by far the best part of the whole movie. It's like what redeemed the whole movie for me. I thought it was incredible. I love this message. Oh my gosh. I was so shocked that you don't. I love the message too. That's what I'm trying to say. That I really appreciate what the message is. But that's not what I thought the message was going to be. Like I felt like this was a huge twist. I think it is a twist. I think it is supposed to feel like a twist. But... I think the movie also does a good job of leading up to it. I think the clearest scene before it's explicitly stated is when they go to the barber shop on Earth. 
Mm-hmm. And Joe slash 22 is talking to the barber and being like, you're the best hairdresser of all time. You were clearly meant to do this with your life. It's your purpose for life. And the barber's like, no, I wanted to be a vet. And it's devastating for 22 slash Joe because the whole idea was that there's that one thing. And if a soul isn't doing their one thing, then it must be a failure. I also want to have a quick aside about Joe being kind of a bad dude. Like, I don't think we've talked about this in this podcast, but like, I'm not a fan of Joe. Yeah, because he's a lost soul. (laughs) No, I'm fine with the lost soul part. I don't like Joe because he's like extremely self-centered and doesn't care about anyone else. I think that's the thing about being a lost soul. Is that they're so wrapped up in this one idea and one goal that they can't see what's around them, including the other people around them. Yeah, but I don't feel like that needs to involve being really rude and self-centered. I think that that can be an internal thing. I don't think you need to assume that someone working in the service industry was born to do that, (laughs) to serve your own purposes. Like, what a wild, awful thing to believe. Sorry, I I just watching <laughs> through this movie, I was like, is Joe a bad dude? Like, it's, I think he's a bad dude. Sorry, this is a tangent. Especially with the barber, though, because at the end, 22 in Joe's body is like, why have we never talked about this before? And the barber's like, you never asked about me. But yeah. thanks for finally asking. Yeah, we just talked about jazz the whole time. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like that. It's weird. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Sorry, we can get back on track. I think it is a beautiful message, and I think they do a really good job of seeding it throughout the whole movie. I I think it does such a good job of showing how damaging the mentality of having a singular purpose in your life can mm-hmm. be. And I think especially in a movie for kids, and actually for, for anybody to see, I think it's resonant. But especially in a movie for kids... I think it's it's really important because so much of the messaging that we as we as adults try to say to kids and and by the way I, I think this is a good message but so much of the messaging is you can be anything you want and you should aspire to be anything and and like reach those like push for those high goals and and try to achieve these great things you can achieve these great things and And it's a wonderful message to tell kids, but I think that there is a danger when that's the only message of that being distorted into you have to achieve these great successes. And if you don't, then you have failed in some way. I like the word distorted because that's the word we're using Mm -hmm. about the zone to being a lost soul. And I think the distortion here is from you can be anything you want to you can do anything you want. Mm. Because so much of what we consider passion to be is a job. Yeah. Right? It's what are you doing, right? That's the big question that you ask people, right? You know, you meet someone, you say, hi, what's your name? What do you do, Mm -hmm. right? What's your job? And there are issues with that. Uh, from a socioeconomic way that we, when you ask someone what they're doing, 
part of that is trying to judge their socioeconomic class and how much respect they deserve and how much education they have. But also what it's doing is reducing someone in the expanse of their humanity to one thing that they do for money as part of the capitalist system as opposed to, you know, who they are. What do you love? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, So it is definitely a distortion there of, you know, everything a soul could be. So I appreciate what the movie's doing to say, no, a spark is reflective of anything a soul can be, whereas a passion is something specific and something that often we as humans try to have monetized. Mm -hmm. And this brings us to what we thought the theme of this movie was, which is that there isn't one big purpose of life and that life is instead made up of the small everyday things. And that's so lovely. It's a really nice theme. It's so, it's so lovely. And it's, it's such a relief too, I think, to hear. I I think. Yeah. Just this idea that you don't have to do anything big or achieve great successes or have some kind of legacy or, or all the pressures that we put on ourselves and other people put on us. There is no grand purpose of life. And it's just, oh my God, it's just, I'm going to sound so cheesy, (laughs) but the movie does such a good job of of conveying this cheesy message in a way that I personally didn't find overly sentimental um, when I was watching it, but really just this idea that life is a gift and that's enough. Sometimes it's enough to eat a slice of cheese pizza and just think, this tastes so good. (laughs) Or to sit on a stoop and look at the sky and just feel the breeze and feel the sun and accept your place in the world. There's something very lovely about it. I think it it really resonates. And I can only speak for myself personally, but I, I found it really resonant that it's those grounding moments Those moments where you can really be present and be where you are and be who Mm -hmm. you are. And it's kind of like the antidote to this overly intense production-driven mentality that is pushed on us in, in the system that we're living in. It's a rebuttal to hustle culture. Yeah, Yes. You don't need to be doing things all the time. You don't have to be, you know, minimaxing your life in pursuit of a single purpose or passion or in pursuit of a job or really of anything because life is not one thing. It's holistic. It's everything, Mm -hmm. including the big things, but also including the small things. And it's about not taking the small things for granted. Right. There's a strange thing about this movie. I like it a lot on paper. I like thinking about it. I really like talking about it. I love the philosophy of it. I love the concepts of it. I love the theme of it. I love, truly adore the music. But I also don't know how much I loved the movie. I think there are lots of parts of the movie that don't exactly follow what the movie is on paper, that don't mm-hmm, meet yes. the premise of the movie. Right. I think there are areas that we are not so engaged with Joe, with 22, that when they reach the conclusion of their character arcs, 
it leaves us a little emotionally wanting. Mm-hmm. It is sort of a cool, quiet movie as opposed to one that really pulls at your heartstrings. I I I think you're right. Um, and man, I think what you said about the characters is really true. And and I'm trying to think back to the previous movies. And I think that Joe specifically is really lacking because they very clearly set up what Joe wants. Joe wants to play in this jazz group with his jazz idols. Yeah, Dorothea Williams. He wants to be famous, well-regarded jazz musician. But we don't see the drive behind this desire. We don't know what it is emotionally that he's getting from jazz or that he thinks that he will get from jazz. And at the end of the the movie, when he talks to Dorothea Williams and he says, what's next? I thought, you know, I, I thought my life was starting now. I thought that yeah. this would be like, this is what I've been working towards. And now I feel the same as I do every day. She says this great line. I heard this story about a fish. He swims up to this older fish and says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, says the older fish. That's what you're in right now. This, says the young fish, this is water. What I want is the ocean. But that comes so late and it still doesn't set up the need behind what Joe wants. Absolutely. We understand why Joe loves jazz. Mm -hmm. It has to do with his father and it has to do with the emotional connection that music gives to us, the way that we can put other things onto music, right? The way that he loves improvisation and there's a beauty in it, there's an aestheticism in it. We understand why he loves jazz, but we don't understand why he wants to be a successful, renowned jazz musician. We don't understand why Joe isn't very happy being not even a middle school band teacher, but just like a middle school English teacher who listens to jazz records when he gets home? Like, what is it that would make that not a satisfying life for Joe? Because it seems like he loves jazz, so he can just love jazz. What makes it his passion and his purpose, and what makes it consuming for him? We never get that. I I have a question about Joe. Maybe it's just another thought experiment. But Joe has lived basically a full life, and dies and has profound insights about what a soul is. He talks to the fabric of the universe about what a soul is. And then he's given a second shot at life. You would think that if you received fundamental information about the nature of life, it would affect the way that you live. It would change some things, maybe fundamental things about the way you live your life. I'm wondering what you think Joe does that next day. Like when Joe gets back to Earth at the end of the movie, if there was an epilogue to this movie, what is Joe doing? Like Joe's looking at the trees. Joe's looking at... He's stopping to smell the flowers. Yeah, he's stopping to smell the flowers, but like, where's he going? You can't, you can't just stop to smell the flowers the whole day that, you know, the small things can't be the big things. You can appreciate the small things, but they still remain the small things. So I'm wondering... Does he keep playing with the Dorothea Williams Quartet? Yeah, yeah, I think he does. But he knows that that's not the end all be all of his life. I think he's just, 
He's had a very spiritual experience,、mm-hmm. and it has changed his outlook on life. But he doesn't change anything. No, he does. He changes the way that he approaches life. But he doesn't change like what he does. He doesn't yeah, that's like. That's why it's a quiet movie about souls and death. I'm just saying, like I don't know. There's an ex that's brought up a couple times. Okay, did I miss something? Who's Lisa? I don't know. She's brought up like twice. Did we meet Lisa? We don't. We never meet Lisa. Lisa she like, never comes up. Is Lisa the principal in the no, beginning of the? Nope. We don't. We meet never Lisa? meet Lisa. Okay, that I wish that we had. This is what I'm saying. Is like I wish that we knew enough about Joe, both about what it is about Jazz and who he is that makes him want to pursue this, but also just a little bit more about. What would be a happy life for him? Yeah, I wish that we knew what would be a happy life. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. set up character set up. Yeah, because then at the end of the movie, when he is allowed to pursue that, we'd be like, Joe's gonna pursue that. Joe's gonna call Lisa, and he's gonna be so happy. But instead, we're like, Joe's definitely gonna call Lisa. They're yeah, gonna, they're gonna get together. I would hope so, but also again, like. We know literally nothing about her, but but we were just like, nah. Joe's just gonna like do the same thing, but like be happier about it. Yeah, no, you're right, and and I think this movie's so philosophical, and it has、mm-hmm. so much to say about these big questions, and it addresses a lot of them in a really interesting way, and I, and I really love what it has to say about the purpose of life.、And、Amazing, you, you have、Amazing. to give. Credit where credit is due. Like taking on this <laughs> question of what's the meaning of life, and then answering it in a way that feels really resonant. It's like, yeah, yeah, maybe that is the meaning of life. It is wild that we're like there are pros and cons to this movie, <laughs> and the pros are that it answers what the meaning of life is, and the cons,、Where's、it's just、Lisa? wild. <laughs> But again, that's how I feel. <laughs> yeah, no, because because we're not just watching. As a thought experiment, we're not just、yeah. watching for philosophy. We're watching for a story, and part of, well, I would say the core of story is character transformation. And what you're saying is true. That yes, I think Joe has this internal transformation, but a big part of the payoff of sitting through a story. I mean, not that. You know, it's unenjoyable. It's enjoyable to watch a story, but、um, the payoff of a story is seeing the tangible ways that this exactly internal transformation manifests. Exactly, and we don't see it. And you're totally right about that. So, <laughs> those are our thoughts on soul. I also think that we have said soul so many times. The word the, has oh lost me. Oh my god,、man. we have really run that word into the ground. It's also such a one-syllable word. Yeah. Like I'm now wondering <laughs> if we said it wrong the whole time. Oh boy! Yikes! <laughs> Literally losing my mind. Josh, what are we watching next week? Next week, week said in heavy <laughs> quotations because we've we've fallen off a little bit. I'm real sorry, guys. We got a little busy, but.、Uh, <laughs> Next week we are watching Luca, the most recent addition to the Pixar catalog, and the final movie in our Pixar series. Oh boy! Well, 
I'm excited. So we'll hopefully see you then for the thrilling conclusion. We'll also probably do a wrap-up pod afterwards. and Our, our big ranking. Oh, yeah. Get excited for that. <laughs> the true and official Pixar movie ranking. Yes. Undisputable. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Follow Tay on Instagram. Oh. Bye. <laughs>